You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 20 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. Here we are again with another edition of Our Ruined Lives. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, COVID Johnnan and David Howe. <laughs> <laughs> She's, God damn it, David. Our guest tonight is our friend, Stefan Milo, the popular YouTuber with a channel by the same name, Stefan Milo. Stefan, it is awesome to have you on the podcast. We're a huge fan of your YouTube channel and the content that you produce. So dude, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no worries. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I've prepared that line. I've been waiting on that line for weeks. Oh, I'm so You've excited to every episode you said, right? Yeah. Every episode, uh, that's it. I'm, I'm so sorry. sorry. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and they do it without uh, any sort of payment, too. That's amazing. I know, yeah. You don't I'm even get stickers. Punishment. You don't even get stickers, either. Yeah, we got to get you something. I gotta, I I'm didn't. making those uh, Go Grow Your Spinach t-shirts, and you'll be sure to get a signed copy of that. <laughs> Can't wait. Living in Portland, Oregon, you know, we grow a lot of spinach <laughs> out here. The spinach-friendly people. Well, good so, stuff, man. Oh, yeah. Carlton, you want to go? No, dude. Absolutely. I was going to say, uh, now that you mentioned Portland, how does a fine British gent like yourself find himself in the Pacific Northwest? Or a limey. <laughs> yeah, a limey. Well, I uh, married a yank. That's uh, that's all there is to it, really. I had, I had no uh, <laughs> driving ambition to move to America. You know, it's fine. I give you guys like a 6.7 out of 10. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, my wife's American. So uh, we met in Europe and uh, decided we would move to Oregon. And here I am. Wow. Yeah, it's great. I'm a big hipster. So big hipster, occasional weed smoker. So Portland, Oregon's fine by me. Oh. <laughs> well, I wish I could comment. <laughs> Wait, you you did your um your undergraduate degree at the University of Sheffield? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did my uh, degree in archaeology at the University of Sheffield. I graduated in uh, 2010, and uh, that that is really the limit of my archaeology career. It's a very short span. As as you guys know, it's not always the easiest profession to find a job in. After I graduated uh, university, it was sort of in the, the height of the recession, the last recession, and uh, archaeology jobs were few and far between. And I was probably a bit optimistic in uh, applying for them as I only had a bachelor's. It's probably more realistic to get a job if you have a master's, it seems. But yeah, I ended up being a teacher and uh, traveled around Europe for a bit. And that's where I met my wife. Nice. Oh, and in the meantime, I'd sort of developed the hobby of making videos. And I thought, oh, I'll make videos about archaeology because I don't know if you guys are aware, there is some questionable content on YouTube in the world of archaeology. And I thought, no. that's a load of bollocks. I can do, I don't know, <laughs> hashtag Gebekli Tepe. <laughs> Dude, I I am a huge fan of your YouTube. It is one of like the only shows that I know when there's an episode like it's going to be good. And I love how you always say, is that Atori's art that you use for these covers? Yeah, Atori, yeah. We've been working 
on the art for my video since uh, November, I think, was the first one. Yeah, he introduced and, uh, me yeah, to you, great. actually. Yeah. Yeah. He introduced you to me? Yeah, I had messaged him saying, like, hey, can you draw this dog burial thing? Because we'd been chatting. And then he was like, hey, do you know Stefan Milo? Because he actually makes really good stuff. And I've been like painting stuff for him too. And I was like, what? And then I saw your page and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> like this guy's <laughs> doing. <laughs> I feel like I discovered a Tory from following you. Really? Yeah. I'm Look at sure. this small, small niche world we live in. <laughs> yeah, we're all just circling a Tory. <laughs> but you have, you have you have over like ten thousand views for all of your videos, and some of these you have close to a hundred thousand views. I mean, how bad the younger Dryas was over a hundred thousand, and I love them. The only thing I hate about them, it's not even you; it's the fucking comments of people yeah. just putting <laughs> dumb shit. Of, I don't, dude. I don't know. They're aggravating. Like I have a hard time not looking at your videos without going at the top comments. And you have, a, you have a, a pinned comment on your younger driest one. Just in case I was not clear in the video, this is not an attack on impact hypothesis. It may well be true, and serious scientists are investigating the idea. However, I do strongly object to the accusation that archaeologists and scientists are hiding the truth from the public. Like the fact you had to put that there for people to read is just fucking gold. And like all these other <laughs> dumbass replies are just just insane. Like, yeah, yeah, they get pretty crazy like uh and i didn't even anticipate this response this only sort of came about or like i realized that there was this whole other side to the world of archaeology when i made a video and i had the audacity to say that the egyptians built the pyramids <laughs> and like the comments underneath were like I can't believe this fucking moron. He thinks the Egyptians built the pyramids. <laughs> like, you've got to respect his bravery for being so stupid. <laughs> Dude, I, 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 I use your um, criticism of, of the solution hypothesis video for my class, by the way. Um, oh, no way. That's the yeah, ultimate no, compliment to me. Because we talk about it, and I'm like, it, I make them watch it in class, and I can watch it with them. Because I'm like, this is it. This is all you idiots need to know. And, uh, yeah, then I make test questions based on your video. So they're at least aware of you. When I first found you, I was like, oh no, is he like going to be one of these crazy dudes or is he going to be doing a good job? And I immediately went down and I saw you had the Saruti Mastodon site on there and I was like, all right, here it is. I'm going to find out about this guy. And I clicked it and you were like, uh, yeah, it sucks. And I was like, yes, (laughs) one of us. Yeah. It's, uh. It's funny, all, all the comments, I really love it when uh, someone leaps to my defense. I have this uh, longtime viewer called Full Swing, shout out to that guy, and uh, he always leaps to my defense, and there's a lot of people in the comments you can read that think that I am this guy Full Swing, and this is like my alter ego, where I can just like <laughs> swear at everybody and tell them to get lost. You have your own <laughs> medic conspiracies now, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's fun. I've got a, I've got a lot of videos in the works that will uh, attract some interesting comments. I'm uh, interviewing Jens uh, Notroff tomorrow, who is an archaeologist at the German Institute of Archaeology, who's worked at Gebekli Tepe, and we're going to set the record straight. I feel like going crazy and making a video on Neolithic Egypt just to really antagonize people. Oh, stir, stir the fucking pot, dude, please. I know, yeah. <laughs> stir the moche pot. 
Yeah. So you mentioned that you, yeah, you got your degree at Sheffield. Where does this like love of making videos come from? Were you doing that when you were younger or is this something that you just figured out you're really good at and that you have 35,000 subscribers or, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I'm a, really good at it. I started making videos when I lived in Serbia and I was teaching English. And again, I, I felt that growing up in the West, a lot of people, all they know about Serbia is the the collapse of Yugoslavia. Of course, all of that's important to know, but it's a whole country and people with a lot more going on than it's uh, modern history. And, uh, it's, uh, near to my heart because my granddad was from Serbia and I have a lot of family there. And I was like, I'm going to make some videos just about life in Serbia. And they, I only made two because <laughs> this girl I was dating at the time basically told me like, why does anyone care what you have to say about anything? <laughs> and totally like burst my idea. And I also, I forgot the password to that YouTube account. So they're still on the internet and I have no way to take them down, but they're terrible and um but yeah it just kind of developed from there i wasn't really successful in any way doing it and i sort of came to the conclusion that i probably wasn't successful because i wasn't talking about what i'm interested in which is archaeology and, and particularly prehistory uh so i was like sod it i'll talk about that the egyptians built the pyramids and the rest is a uh, history <laughs> Dude, fair enough. That's dope. Um, yeah, and you know, I can. I think you're a pretty successful YouTuber. I mean, based on the conversation we had yesterday, when you were at work and you got a compliment, would you like to uh, tell that story for our audience? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, being a YouTuber isn't my full time job. It may well be uh, by the end of this year. That's one of my goals this year, but it isn't currently. And uh, I was at my job. I work in an IT department at a local bank, and someone came in, I was fixing a printer and someone said that they're a fan of mine and I didn't really understand what they meant. So I just kind of responded with like, yeah, everyone loves the IT department. We're the best. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then I got home and uh, she had written me an email saying that uh, she was a fan of the show and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I wish I'd have known at the time because I'd have taken a selfie with her in, in front of everyone. I'd have been, and the rest <laughs> of the day at work, I was like, I'm a famous YouTuber and you guys need to get my autograph or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm heading for the big time, clearly. <laughs> oh, it's well earned, man. You do good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I try. I really try. I have like a laser focus on improving, uh, the quality of my videos. Like I watch PBS eons mm -hmm. and I say to myself, I'm going to be better than them. I'm going to destroy PBS eons. You know, they're fantastic. They do great work and they're more than welcome to give me a highly paid job, but also I'm going to destroy them <laughs> and be the best archeology span <laughs> channel on the internet. Right there with you. I'm in those DMS every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to add that to the list of our ongoing feuds. Jane Goodall, PBS Eons. Yeah. <laughs> what did you call her? Jenny D or, or Jenny G? Janie Jane, G? Janie G. G. <laughs> God, I love that. When you, when you do these videos, are you writing like 
kind of like a, a paper, like a research paper into a script, or do you kind of just like have some points and then talk to the camera? Because they're like very well researched. Thanks. I appreciate it. I really try. Yeah. I have uh, three golden rules on my channel because I'm aware that I'm not an expert far from it. So uh, I always, you know, use reputable sources, academic sources. I always post those sources in the description. And uh, I always try to very clearly say when I'm giving my personal opinion. And I feel like having those three rules is uh, helping me maintain the quality of the videos. Good. But yeah, I basically uh, research a lot. You know, it's one of those things, research kind of snowballs. The more you read, it's almost like the more you don't understand and you have to keep reading and reading. And yeah, some videos, you know, get put on the back burner because I realize I don't know enough and it's going to take me a long time to, to get to that point. So, um, but most of the time I, I really... I, I basically write them like an essay. I've got the script all laid out and, uh, you know, with footnotes and everything so that I can quickly add them into the video. Because as well in the video, I put like a little number to indicate which source I got that specific piece of information from. Oh, wow. So I make it as easy as possible for someone to critique my work. That's that's the system, basically. Dude, I have to, I have to say, like, I mean, that's what you do for YouTube is really good academia. I mean, as David mentioned, like there, it's well-written, you have your sources, you talk about them. And just hearing you talk about like, the more you read, the more you realize you don't know. And that's like all about what higher education is and all about being a good academic is because you ask any of those pseudo archeologist idiots to like, Oh, read this one person. And that's all you need. Here's your go-to information. And it's like, that's not how it works. It's like, as you said, you just read one thing and you go down rabbit holes at different sources, following their citations to read their full paper. Like anytime I read an article, I, I look at, I run it through Adobe and see who they cite the most and then read those papers and see who they cite the most. And then, you know, I'm 10 levels later with a hundred articles to, to answer the questions I had about one article. Yeah. And I still don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. I mean that video on the younger Dryas and how bad was it? I think I had over 30 sources in it, you know, which is basically, you know, a full piece of academic writing, at least at undergraduate level. Yeah. And, uh, and I know people are going to come at me with questions and I do it for my own peace of mind because I don't want to put a video out there with some absolutely glaring error in. I mean, everyone makes mistakes. I, I just really try and avoid that as much as possible just for my own peace of mind. I mean, just for our audience to know, like if you go to his younger driest impact video, you put 19 sources there and you say, I couldn't fit all the sources. I ran out of room, click this link. And then you did full fucking citations for 39 sources. So dude, that's, that's amazing. Like that is just amazing scholastic work. Yeah. I, I would say that like some, some master's students don't, end up having that much, you know, or that good of research skills. And that's, and those things are, it's huge. It's huge to have that on YouTube and, and, and produce this content for the public. It's just amazing, man. Yeah. Thanks. I, uh, I try really hard. I mean, that video, (laughs) 
excuse my French, that took fucking ages to research. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to do the same thing for Gobekli Tepe. And thank God Jens Nodroff agreed to be interviewed because otherwise I was going to have to go to the same level of research because when you touch on a subject that is really, to call a spade a spade, that's really captured the attention of Graham Hancock, like you've got to have all your ducks in a row because you're literally going to have thousands of people calling you an idiot as soon as you publish that video. Yeah, his little army. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking hate the Graham Hancock goons and the stuff that they produce. Like anytime I see a video where I'm like, this might be skeptical, they always quote his dumb ass. And I'm like, I'm already I already know I'm not gonna enjoy this fucking thing. I mean, like the video David sent us yesterday in our group chat. I, I immediately was like, Great, David just ruined my fucking evening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To be clear, I totally understand their enthusiasm and passion for ancient history and prehistory because that's something i share but the the level of evidence that you see in a lot of these videos is uh is so poor it's uh it's really terrible to be honest yeah speaking of uh terrible let's wrap this session up and let's go to the next one <laughs> i'm kidding this was great <laughs> i just had no better segue all right welcome back to segment two of the episode 20 of life in the Ruins podcast what I meant by terrible in the last one was the podcast, not actually what Stefan was saying. But, uh, Stefan, I have two questions for you. The first being, or actually, wait, the second, but answer the first one first. That's confusing. I'm going to ask you two what? questions. What the Sorry. fuck? <laughs> What's up with the spoon? I need to know the origin of that. And the second is, what did you want to talk about today? Hold on, what fucking spoon? Well, you must not watch his videos then. Uh, well, yeah, caught you out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, actually, I'm staring at it right now. You have a spoon in your fucking hand and the younger drive. I never really noticed that. Yeah. So uh, the spoon mic, the my viewers, they go crazy if I'm not plugging my microphone into a spoon now. It's become a bit of a thing. It just basically started because I was making a video one day in an anorak, a raincoat, as you Americans would call it. And uh, I basically had to delete the whole video because all you could hear was just like whoosh, 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 of me <laughs> moving around in this anorak. <laughs> I also have no idea what to do with my hands when I appear on camera. So it's sort of almost like a prop too. So I just thought... That is always weird. Yeah, exactly. So I just thought bollocks to it. I'll clip the uh, microphone to a spoon and just use it like a regular microphone. And uh, the internet went wild. It was a sensation so it's just kind of stuck <laughs> around and i use the same spoon every time i'm not oh. you know we got to care for the environment here i'm not throwing plastic spoons all over the place <laughs> that's your portland coming off yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna ask that is it you gotta put like uh throw your viewers off and throw in like a gold spoon or something or put like a chip spoon just to see if people are paying attention like <laughs> or just something subtle like a spork Spork. Yeah. <laughs> well. you, could, you could auction off your spoons like you could be like this is the original spoon and i'm gonna sell it for three hundred dollars and someone would buy it maybe maybe <laughs> but then i'd be i'd be spoonless um <laughs> I, did, I did a film a video in new york and i forgot to bring the spoon so i used that little wooden stirry thing that you get at coffee shops Oh, and, I remember uh, that one. Yeah. Yeah. My viewers were not impressed. They really thought I'd let the whole side down by forgetting <laughs> the spoon. So, 
You were outside the AM and H, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is a crazy place. And one of my viewers got me in for free and gave me and my friends a guided tour. So that was great. Nice. You uh, you hear that, Caleb Walsh? We need you to watch all of Stefan's uh, videos and tell us which one he's spoonless in uh, from now until eternity. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking for merch, I could put like draw the spoon mic on a shirt and have like audio file written underneath it or something. I don't know. <laughs> Dude, I'd buy it. <laughs> I, think, I think you need to invent the spoon mic, which is a mic that is exactly shaped as a spoon. Mm. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like the mic microphone shapes are pretty scientifically like solid. Like, get out of here with your science. <laughs> a spoon. One yeah. All right. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I used to work at the Amy's, no big deal. But anyway, what's, what, the second question. <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> uh, second one was, <laughs> what did you want to talk about today? We had uh, an interesting topic last night, right? Yeah. So whilst I've got three esteemed archaeologists on the phone, I wanted esteemed? to... Esteemed? Uh, <laughs> esteemed, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I had this idea for a video. I was like, what can I do to get into the to the mindset of these uh, Paleolithic people that used to roam the earth? And uh, I thought, I know, I'll go and stay in a cave for three days or five days or something like that. And uh, then I thought, well, that's kind of dangerous. There's bears and mountain lions. Maybe I should take a gun because this is America after all. So uh, I thought I'll take a gun. And then, you know, obviously guns, unless you read like uh, Graham Hancock books, they didn't exist in the Paleolithic. So <laughs> what would I gain from, would it ruin the experience taking a gun? And then I thought, well, I'm also not wearing the same clothes as them. I'm also not eating the same food as them. And at any moment I get too uncomfortable, I can just go home. So, you know, how could I have really ever gotten into the, the mindset of people that lived f deep in prehistory? And so that got me thinking about the limits of experimental archaeology, basically. Like, how far can we understand the people that lived in the past on a, on a sort of personal level, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I guess Donnie Dust is kind of doing kind of like that, but he's not doing it with like an archaeological. Oh, dude, I'm texting thing. him right now this question, like asking him like, yo, how do you get into the mindset? So stay tuned. Yeah. Because I'm sure as you guys know, and a lot of your listeners know, experimental archaeology is maybe great for finding like uh, patterns of wear and tools and stuff like that. But how does it, I don't know, maybe I'm just spending like too much time in Portland, Oregon, but like, how can I get into the mindset of these people? Do you know what I mean? Uh, I have a, a suggestion, I guess. I don't want to take time away from the other guys, but my cultural anthropology professor in grad school, and I was writing a paper kept suggesting like and then imploring and then like demanding and then it was required for me to read this book and i was like okay <laughs> um guess i will and it was called how forests think and it is by eduardo cone i believe k-o-h-n and it was called i just said it how forests think and it's called like about the ontological turn and that's a like kind of like a paradigm in archaeology now or in anthropology and what it is is like 
in order to fully understand the people that like, if you're an ethnographer hanging out with a bunch of like Aboriginal Australians, or I think in, in the book, they use people in Brazil, like in the jungles. And you have to understand like how they think about the world and like this tribe they were with, like believe like the trees communicate with, you know, dogs and the dogs can communicate with like the sand and weird stuff like that. Or it's not weird, but weird to us. And like by understanding that, then you can therefore have a better understanding of like their culture. And it was like kind of a mind blow for me. I was like, what? And then some of it went way over my head, but like in the thing, like the people would like blow ayahuasca into the dog's like snout and then like speak <laughs> in a mother tongue to it and be like, you will not pee in the shed and like weird stuff. But because of that, like they, it had something to do with like the plants could communicate and like in that state they could anyway, but to get yourself into the mindset, I'm not suggesting we do ayahuasca, but um, it might be a thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that book, I, I, would, I would check it out. That's interesting. But I imagine those things are very culturally specific and it's probably too subtle for any of that to appear in the archaeological record, especially if we were talking about the Paleolithic, Paleolithic era. Yeah. 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 So I think it brings us back to what you said. It might be there's a limit. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, like people today and prehistoric people, peoples of the past, like they have more than just a physical toolkit, but like a mental toolkit. So, I mean, to like get yourself in the mindset of like a prehistoric person, you kind of have to like erase knowledge that you have already acquired, right? Because you're because it's it's knowledge isn't singular; it's it's stacked. If that makes any sense, like it's built upon. So, like we've. You know, our knowledge is based on over 8,000 years of, well, more than that, like hundreds of thousands of years of data that our ancestors have been collecting and passing down. So I, I don't know. It's like, it's tough, right? And as you said, Stefan, like these things don't last in the archaeological record. What we get are tools. And then maybe what they're, you know, how their houses were laid out. You know, sometimes we don't even know what their houses were made of. We just see the post holes and we just kind of have to guess, mm. you know, what the shelter was. So, dude, I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough question, right? Because it's, I don't know, even, even using like modern day hunter gatherers as kind of these proxies is still filled with those kind of similar problems where we, where we are assuming that these or in some cases at least like early folks getting into the field we're assuming that these are like exactly how hunter gatherers lived like 10,000 years ago or 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 whatnot yeah it's it's super difficult we can't just erase these hundreds of thousands of years of knowledge that's been selected upon that literally made us humans you know yeah i, I agree carlton man yeah because again, to go back to the the cave analogy, I was thinking, for example, Folsom Cave here in Oregon has some radiocarbon dated finds that were probably sort of fourteen thousand, maybe a little bit older years old, like very early in the human occupation of the Americas. To them, sleeping in a cave might have been fantastic compared to the alternative. But to me, straight from the get-go, I'm looking at it almost kind of horrified. Like I'm almost just doing this yeah, because it's going to make like a good YouTube video. And so like from the very outset, 
our perspectives are, are polar opposites. Yeah, I mean, I haven't slept in a cave, so I haven't <laughs> found a way to get over this hurdle. And maybe, like you said, maybe it's not even possible. Well, I mean, it's also like these people were also in groups, so you wouldn't, they wouldn't have been sleeping in caves by themselves most of their time anyways. Like, you know, there's there's comfort in, in being with other people, right? So, like, in order to really try to do this experiment of, like, how, like, living like a prehistoric person, you need, like, a group of people. And I guess, like, archaeologists and ancient tech people would probably be the best equipped because even though we have modern knowledge, we also know of some of the skill sets that uh, Aboriginal people use and prehistoric people use as, like, kind of a baseline for, you know, how to maybe get it done. But, like, as you said earlier... You know, if it gets too hard, you could always just go home and stop by McDonald's on the way. And that's just not a fucking, that just wasn't an option back then. Yeah. yeah. So what you're saying is all four of us should do it. I'm thinking that you, <laughs> Forever. Like Stefan Milo and a life in ruins and ethnocynology do a team up with Donnie dust where he just takes us into the woods and we just cry the whole time. Dude, I would and be so then, down for that. Then we can yeah. figure out what, what it was like to live back then while he just eats meat in the corner laughing the only thing i would ask for is booze otherwise i wouldn't make it (laughs) we'll ferment some berries dude yeah or your own piss (laughs) (laughs) we should get kato belch on board and he can be our stick gathering boy (laughs) this is all getting very lord of the flies very quickly (laughs) (laughs) who has the conch here's one though um i don't know if i told you guys this i told people at work and they were like okay weird so i just i built a cave wall and i was painting the cave art on it and i have the lights flickering and i put didgeridoo music on this is gonna sound real weird i'm weird and then i like i'm doing it in there and like or not doing it i'm painting the wall and i was blowing the like the paint or the pigment from like a bowl and a straw to blow like the ochre handspray on my hand onto the wall. And as I did that, it makes this really weird like whistling sound. If you were to blow into like a straw in a soda cup, it would do that. It made that sound and then like you're getting lightheaded and then the stuff is like moving on the walls because it's like flickering, you know? And I was thinking like, man, if I was in Paleolithic France or Spain and this was happening, this would be the trippiest thing ever or this would be like the coolest experience ever. So I didn't even go into that making an experimental archaeology thought. I just went into it because I was like, I'm going to paint this dope cave wall. But I ended up doing experimental archaeology and I was like, whoa. So I learned something from it. And that's why they probably had all those like instruments in there. And they probably thought they were doing trances and whatnot. And I don't know. What do you guys think of that? I would, I would say that's more experi- exper- experiential. That sounds like some post-processional bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> get out of here. No, uh, like, exp- I feel like now we can we can we can say that we do exper like a uh, experiential archaeology, you know, where we we try to yeah, where we try to replicate these kind of moments in time to say hey, which is totally on that post processualist bullshit, um, sort of sort of thing. I don't know bullshit. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it's one of those things that you know you could do it and just be like, "This is what happened to me, and it's possible it happened to people of the past." And that is a perfectly fine conclusion. Yeah. Now, just do that and be like, "This is exactly how people experienced it." It's like, no, that's that's not okay. But I would yeah. trust you wouldn't do that, uh, David. Yeah, 
Uh, Stefan, what's like a question you have that you would like to answer, like by doing experimental archaeology? I don't know, really. I, uh, I just to probably... know what they felt like, or yeah. So I'm just sort of fascinated, really, by people's. Um, I just, I just wish I could sort of chat to them. Really, I just w- really would love to understand them. This is why I'm really. Uh, keen on my sources in my videos and I really try and do the the research I'm not so interested in speculating because we could say anything about any time period like I really want to try and understand these people and I really care about what we can definitively can or can't say you know Uh, this this why I don't like all the the speculation that's in like pseudo-archaeology and stuff like that I don't know. I just, I'm just fascinated by these people. For example, my next video or one I'm researching at the minute is on a, a Neolithic cave in the south of Italy called uh, Grotta Scaloria. And the, the cave is basically two chambers connected by this long, narrow chamber that you would have to crawl through. And in the first huge chamber, there are 120 people buried there and their bones are pretty much smashed to bits. And then you would have to crawl through this very narrow chamber in the dark with no, with maybe like a small lamp or something. That would be your only source of light. And then in this huge second chamber, there's a, a lake and they cut the top off stalagmites and uh, put pottery on there to collect water dripping from the top of the cave. And there was like one skull placed in the wall. That's just mental. I just want to understand what these guys were thinking. I just really want to understand them. And yeah. anything I can do to to do that, whether it's like with research or sleeping in a cave with 50 rifles and 10 <laughs> hamburgers just to keep me safe, I just want to do it. You know, it's, it's the thing I'm most interested in. So, All right. On uh, that note... What did we learn this uh, section? The younger was dry as fuck. Or maybe not. Is that not, am I reading uh, that right? Uh, <laughs> yep. There, yep. Perfect. And uh, we'll be back with segment three. What? <laughs> All right. Welcome back to episode 20 of a Life in Ruins podcast, also known as the show where Connor makes shitty jokes that he's going to have to explain on the next section. It was a joke about the younger dry as the younger dry as fuck. Okay. Settled. Thank um, you, Connor. So, <laughs> can I can I define these terms real quick? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Just so because uh, we got so excited talking with our friend Stefan, uh, just for our audience, real quick. Experimental archaeology is a field of study which attempts to generate and test archaeological hypotheses, usually by replicating or approximating the feasibility of ancient cultures performing various tasks or feats. It employs a number of methods, techniques, analyses, and approaches based upon archaeological source materials such as ancient structures or artifacts. So that is experimental archaeology. And for a little archaeology theory inside joke, post-processual archaeology is sometimes or alternately referred to as interpretive archaeology by its adherents. It's a movement in archaeological theory that emphasizes the subjectivity of archaeological interpretations. Despite having a vague series of similarities, post-processualism consists of very diverse strands of thought coalesced into loose cluster of traditions. 
Within the post-processualist movement, a wide variety of theoretical viewpoints have been embraced, including structuralism and neo-Marxism, as have a variety of different archaeological techniques, such as phenomenology. So, yep. <laughs> yeah, and I want to clarify. Yeah, I want to clarify my statement on the uh, post-processualism. It's not bullshit, but there is some theories and methods that can be questionable as part of that. But everyone has their own opinions about processualism, post-processualism. Mm. You know, theories, theory is theory. But yeah, thanks for those definitions. Oh shit, Donnie just got back to me. So I asked Donnie, uh, when you started going out into the bush, did you try and get yourself into the mindset of prehistoric person? His response was, I did. My goal was to totally rely on nature. I accepted everything I could and when need will come from nature. I really focused on priorities of living, safety, shelter, fire, food, and water. Once those are solved or not a necessity, other abilities develop. It's a journey for sure. And now he's asking me if I want to live a little bit more wild. So I'm going to take him up on that offer. Continue, Connor. <laughs> I was just going to ask if, uh, Stefan, you've participated in any sort of uh, experimental archaeology besides uh, the cave venture. And what would you want to do? Uh, yeah. So when I was at Sheffield University, we did build an Iron Age, a replica of an Iron Age roundhouse using only uh, hand tools that they would have had available. Um, so that was pretty fun i'm not sure what i learned from it but it was definitely an enjoyable <laughs> couple of weeks um, building stuff is hard <laughs> yeah exactly um the sure would be easier with a power drill sort of <laughs> perspective um i don't know i was just sort of the the reason that i thought about sleeping in a cave is that it's something that was accessible to anyone with a cave. I was just sort of thinking of video ideas that that anyone could do at home. Someone watching my video could try and do it themselves to uh, help understand the people of the past a little bit better. So I, do, I don't know if you guys have any other ideas about easy things you could do. I did read on the Twitter this uh, guy I follow whose name I can't remember, baked uh, bread using Egyptian yeast, Egyptian wheat, and uh, baked it how they would do it. So that was really interesting. But i that's the whole philosophy behind that cave video, is something that ordinary people could do at home to try and understand yeah. people in the past. One thing I try to do, especially if I get like an Amazon box or something that I have to cut, I'll like go right to like my stone tools that are sitting on the counter and I'll like cut with stone tools. But I've thought about like, what if I could do? Well, now I'm thinking about it. Like, could I just go a whole week and anytime I had to cut something, just use a stone tool. Like don't use a knife. Don't use like for meat, for vegetables. They'd probably change your perceptions a little bit of like how it works. Dude, could you get, imagine getting a piece of obsidian like broken off into your meat and swallowing that thing? Yeah, I would. I would use like quartzite. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna go right <laughs> for the big stuff. <laughs> yeah, I did actually think of uh, <laughs> trying to find like a, a friendly local butcher and giving them stone tools to butcher an animal to get their perspective from it, because somebody in the past would have done it extremely often. So my I've never butchered an animal in my life, so it's going to be hard for me whether I'm using a chainsaw or a hand axe. 
But a, a butcher who is very comfortable doing it, their insight on how to use those stone tools might be interesting. Yeah. No, dude, that, that makes a lot of sense. I This little known fact about me, I was actually an apprentice meat cutter when I was in community college before I did the whole insurance gig. So like when I'm butchering an animal with like stone tools and stuff, like I kind of have that background knowledge of how to slice meat in, in ways, if that makes any sense. And I definitely rely on that to, when I'm doing things. So it's not like I've never butchered an animal before, have that background where I'm just like with a stone tool and a dead, dead animal. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'd just be there like trying to cut its ankle off or something with an arrowhead. <laughs> like it's not working. <laughs> you could just snap those off, dude. That's what Devin does. You just take those ankles and just break them in half and toss them aside. Wow. Did I ever tell you guys the story of the taphonomy project I had to do in undergrad with the deer? No. Uh, I'll, I'll be quick about it, but it was experimental class and experimental zooarchaeology. And what I was trying to do was cook half of a deer and boil half of a deer. And I wanted to see which ones scavengers preferred more um, or like what they got to first. But to do that, I had to cut up a roadkill deer that was in the Zoark freezer. And Dr. Clipple at UT, who is an old Southern man, was like, here's a knife, here's the deer, here's the sink, don't make a mess. And I was like, okay. And I did not know a thing about butchering an animal. So I was like, ah, and I had this giant deer that was frozen. So I had like saws and I had some knives and... I was like, okay, well, I've watched Dexter, so what would I do? And then I was like, well, I guess you have to drain the blood out. So then I, like, slit the deer's, like, throat trying to, like, drain the blood over the sink. And then Dr. Clipple came back in, and I was just kind of, like, aimlessly, like, pacing around, like, what? nothing's happening. And then he just comes in, and he's like, how's it going? And then he just <laughs> looks at me, looks at the deer, and then looks back at me, and I tried to step in front of where I just slit the deer's throat, and he was like, yeah, that's not what you do. <laughs> and then he, like, went in and, like, showed me how to do it. <laughs> and, oh, man. I just ended up sawing it in half because it was basically just ice. But <laughs> did he refer anyway, to you so as a serial killer from there on out? <laughs> but that that was another funny thing. It was in an old like frat house type building, like on the old part of campus. And I stood outside, like getting like some air because it just sinks in there. There was a rotting baboon like next to me, so I was like, Ugh. and I was outside on the porch, and these like frat guys are, like walking by, going to their place, and I'm out there like covered in blood, with like Dexter, COVID nineteen looking clothes on, and I was just like, uh, <laughs> hey guys, it's <laughs> like standing out there, like, eh. it's good stuff. Anyway, so that was experimental. I learned not what to do. Don't store it, bro. <laughs> well, you guys don't drain the blood from a frozen animal. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, at CSU, they had a whole, the way I did my undergraduate, uh, they had a whole class just in experimental archaeology uh, talked by doc, Dr. Richard Adams, and I wasn't able to take it, but some of the experiments they did were super interesting. Uh, a girl like ground corn to see on oh my god it was insane she had like grind corn in one direction it was it was just absolutely crazy i don't remember exactly what it is but yeah grinding corn would be awful um they did all kinds of stuff like that and it's it's super interesting um and you david you did part of your thesis is on that right or is on experimental archaeology yeah i mean like i guess the whole thing kind of was but yeah. It was sciencey as fuck. Yeah, we did talk about it. Yeah. 
I got the point sitting right behind me on the wall, and the ballistics gels now got a bunch of dead ants glued to it in the garage. So, because yeah. it, it like melts and the ants want to eat it, I guess I don't know. But, what were you shooting? I had these thirty obsidian projectile points that were like really small and really big, like in varying size. And I was just shooting them from a bow into the ballistics gel, like testing penetration and whatnot mm. and velocity. Yeah. And you had to, you had to get like a, a friggin' uh, rig all uh, welded together. It's pretty intense. Yeah. It's like a cool, like mechanical machine that like I could click the button and it would shoot the arrow into it. So I like eliminated the human error. It was really fun. And I was trying to basically prove that Clovis people could have been using bows and arrows. Like, was it feasible to shoot? a big Clovis sized point with a bow and the theory, the thesis says, yeah, it is, but I don't still don't know if they were. And did it give you a, that inside look on how they killed the Saruti Mastodon 150,000 years ago? <laughs> Apparently with a bulldozer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've held those things, man. They're it's old, but those ain't tools. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. That's uh, my official stance. Oh, Saruti. Oh, and for the, I guess for our listeners who don't, might not know what that is. That's the super hyped up 100,000 year old, uh, 120,000-year-old supposedly modified Mastodon bone uh, un, unearthed in, in California, which has questionable, very questionable <laughs> marks on it. Yeah. Was it, it was unearthed during the construction of a freeway or at least a road yeah it road was expansion i think yeah like road the worst possible scenario yes um yes yes again that more than likely these crushed up mastodon bones were the result of definitely the result of human activity but not one hundred twenty thousand years ago but of two years ago or what no 20 years ago now i guess from a bulldozer so yeah steve holland he was the archaeologist he has a knack for finding old sites, interestingly enough. So, I don't know, dude. I honestly read the goddamn article and then read what everyone else says about it because it's it's just not it's just not possible. Do you guys? Uh, here's another question, and it's totally unconnected to experimental archaeology. So, I hope the listeners enjoyed that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what are some other like uh, fringe theories that would make a good YouTube video? Oh, oh I mean, there's tons, man. <laughs> I've been looking into the cocaine mummies. The and, what? Uh, the, the 10 Egyptian mummies that tested positive for cocaine. Well, we know what the lab manager was doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> Someone sneezed while doing a line, man. Exactly. Well, they were in the a royal German palace for like most of the 19th century or at least a fair portion of it oh when, that's definitely you know, in the 19th century yeah. oh boy you could just go into a shop and just buy cocaine <laughs> and yeah so yeah could it have happened then I wonder but. dude I mean that yeah I mean cause like Egyptian mummies god knows how old it comes from the cacao plant or the what, what does cocaine come from coca. plant? Yeah. the yeah. coca yeah. Is it cocoa or the cacao? Or is that the same thing? Cacao is chocolate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, coca plant in South America? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but here's the yeah. thing. In my research, uh, plants in both Africa and India contain 
cocaine just at much smaller levels so it's not very good if you were to start a drug cartel but if an egyptian mummy did test positive for cocaine it is still not necessarily proof that they sailed to america and got it case closed (laughs) another one uh you could look up like the meadowcroft rock shelter do a video on that that was excavated that was excavated by uh adavazio who has a rather interesting reputation in our field it was dug up in like the 70s or the 60s and like he's never published on it although it's supposedly one of the oldest sites in the americas and it's in pennsylvania yeah it's like supposed to be a 50,000 year old pre uh, paleo or pre-clovis site um and i believe it's like right in the middle of an anthracite coal mine so yeah um, I've, I've actually visited it um the guy that got me into archaeology back in community not, college so. was his grad student it, yeah it's an interesting site that there's nothing published on it, although, you know, Adavazio claims it's, you know, a 15,000 year old site or 17,000. Uh, I think it's 17,000 years old to 1500 uh, BCE. So, oh, the, the bog mummies that that stupid friggin' huge guy uh, messaged me on my account. Then he, he sent me like archaeology stuff.net as his source. And I was like, cool. And like those, the Windover bog bodies it was. And he was trying to say that they're like descendants of Adam and stuff. And I was like, you can get right out of here, man. (laughs) They're giants. But like, I've never seen anything about giants there. They're just bog bodies that were buried there. Like, I I don't know. There's that one. Um, Giants. I always get people asking about giants, especially in Nashville, I guess, because it's like the Bible belt. I don't know like what the deal with that is, but. Isn't um, there something in the Bible? I might be getting my religious books wrong but there's like uh, is it like the anunnaki or something like that which are oh, the giants dude, that's, uh, that's in the you know that's the pseudo archaeologist bible chariot of the gods i think it's mentioned is it uh, I mean, the, the philistines are supposed to be too i think right yeah the giants they just punched the saruti mastodon to death because they were giants <laughs> <laughs> they didn't need bow and arrows they just sucker punched it awkward because they'll be like oh you're an archaeologist and i'm like yeah and they're like what what do you think about those giants and it just ends the conversation because i'm like "Uh, i I don't (laughs) i I don't think about the giants because they're not real dude ever since we did that instagram post read that guy at the leather store try to tell me about giants and i tagged my uh, cousin who runs the uh american indian museum in dc he's always sending me giant shit to tease me Oh, well, he's part of the cover-up, isn't he? That's yeah, the, he's part of the cabal. He's the yeah. head guy. He knows all about him. He's seen him. Yeah, we can openly say that here because only archaeologists listen to this. So we're all in on the scam. Yes, all, all thousands, tens of thousands of archaeologists getting paid dirt are all in on this underground, super secret, doesn't mean a goddamn thing. Yeah. God, getting me worked up. <laughs> you've, you've had some interesting comments on there. Is there one particularly that you like what to share that was funny i remember one of them i i had to comment on i can't remember what it was but on my videos yeah someone was calling you something and i went in and i was like oh actually he's like he knows what he's talking about i don't uh, i mean i'm sure you get many i had like <laughs> compiled this bunch of comments and i was gonna read them out at the end of the year but it, it just became too many <laughs> like just too many people calling me a moron and an idiot and a shill a shill, and, that was what it was. Yeah. They in the actually in the younger Dryas video, someone was calling me like 
like a dangerous psychopath or something like that. Like I'm like corrupting the youth of America by presenting this information. It was pretty odd. Jesus. But someone came to my defense and was like, obviously he's not a dangerous psychopath. That says more about you than it does him. Yeah. So shout out to that guy. Well, good stuff, dude. Stefan, it was <laughs> awesome having you on the podcast. We're a huge fan of yours. But uh, where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can go to youtube.com slash Stefan Milo, S-T-E-F-A-N-M-I-L-O. Yeah, just go watch a video and uh, don't skip the advert. And you also have an Instagram. <laughs> yeah, his, on Instagram and Twitter at history smilo because apparently there's another stefan milo somewhere oh fuck that, that guy well know, awesome yeah. we will definitely put those in the show notes for our uh, listeners to find you at follow you on instagram and twitter and check out dude you're honestly your awesome videos uh connor take it away yeah uh so yeah thanks for joining us and and given the chance again and because this is a life in ruins would you still choose to film a life in ruins uh yeah, sure. That wasn't, yeah. Even, that wasn't even a sentence. <laughs> that was not even a sentence. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, everyone, we just interviewed uh, Stefan Milo, an archaeologist and YouTuber. And uh, that is it for episode 20. The big 2-0, boys. We got the 20 episodes that have been shut down. All In right. the month of April. I know. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, dude. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you uh, on the next episode. Peace. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This is not a joke I wrote myself, so direct your hate towards the internet. Gentlemen, what do you get in a five-star pyramid? What? A tomb with a view. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> I really thought you were going to be like the truth. <laughs> <laughs> wi Fi. Yeah. Oh, boy. Thank you, Connor, as always. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Christ, that was painful. I'm so sorry. <laughs>